Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Bob Dylan and I threw it all away from the Isle of Wight Festival back in 1969. I've got the huge pleasure to welcome today Michael Gray who's got a superb anthology of his writings on Bob Dylan called Outtakes on Bob Dylan. Welcome Michael. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Oh it's uh, it's my pleasure. So <laughs> you're <laughs> In terms of um, writing about Bob Dylan, your story about that and your writings go all the way back to, uh, is it 1967? Yes, that sounds like, uh, you know, an incredibly long time ago. And of course, for anyone young, it is. It's history, of course. But um, I had first 
listened to and been enthused about Bob Dylan in 64 when the latest album was Another Side of Bob Dylan, the last completely solo album until the 1990s. I wasn't exactly immediately off the mark with starting to write, but after listening to the way he was changing so much between 64 and 67, I mean, you know, he went electric. Not only did he go electric, but I mean, bringing it all back home and Highway 61 Revisited and Blonde on Blonde, that trilogy of albums, they don't sound like each other at all. And so it was amazing to me that somebody should come along and be so radical and so quick to uh, change their own sound and their own kind of writing, the whole genre they were working in. And so, yeah, I decided that I uh, wanted to to write about his work. I've never wanted to write his biography, but I've I've wanted to write about his work. As I mentioned before, our first track was A Fruit All Away at the Isle of Wight, and we heard on The Strange Brew a little bit about that um, in recent months because um, I spoke to Jonathan Taplin recently. Oh, yes. He talked about members of the Beatles coming down, except Paul. You were at the Isle of Wight Festival, weren't you? I was. I was commissioned to um, write about it for the very short-lived special British edition of Rolling Stone magazine, when Rolling Stone was still an, an underground paper, part of the counterculture, as it was then. And I was commissioned to write about it, and uh, another guy was commissioned to take photographs. And afterwards, I was rather uh, uh, displeased to hear that whereas my fee was £20, mm. his fee was £100. Gosh. Well, that should have been a signal to me that uh, freelance writing was going to be a life of uh, struggle and <laughs> poverty. And that if I wanted to do well... I would uh, I would pick up a camera instead of a typewriter. But Dylan and the band were 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 on top form for that show, weren't they? It depends what you wanted. I mean, this was the new Bob Dylan voice of Nashville skyline. Uh, this was a Bob Dylan who was so completely different from how he had been on those 1966 shows, where the first half had been solo acoustic and the second half had been electric and sort of 10 times as loud as you'd ever heard anything in your life before. And I had seen that concert in Liverpool in 66. And Liverpool at the time, because of the Beatles, was the absolute center of the musical universe. And yet what Dylan did there was so much more challenging and radical a form of rock music than anyone had ever heard from a Mersey Beat beat group. Anyway, so when he got to the Isle of Wight, which was just three years later, and he came on sounding like um, like a very smooth sort of Hank Williams country singer. It was a it, that that was a big change too, and um, and not everyone thought that was a great uh, a change for the better. I really liked uh, the Nashville Skyline album, and my main uh, my main. Uh, dislike of anything to do with the Isle of Wight Festival was just that it was three days of sitting around in the mud and um, for Bob Dylan to come along and play for an hour. 
at the end of it for what was at the time um, a fabulously large amount of money. He was he was being paid thirty five thousand pounds for an hour's work, as it were. And around that period, the bootlegs, the Bob Dylan bootlegs, were legendary and, and kind of were, uh, for many people, just as important as the, the officially released material. We next have the acetate version of This Wheels on Fire. Oh, yes. From the Basement Tapes era. W- wonderful version there. One of the notable bootlegs was Great White Wonder, wasn't it? Yes, Great White Wonder. Uh, the, the first time I came across the bootlegs was in a... I'd written a piece for Oz, which was another underground paper. Uh, that was published in 67. That's the piece in the book that's from 67. This piece I wrote for Oz. And they didn't pay people. I seem to be moaning about payment again. But anyway, instead of being paid, I was... Uh, the contributors were taken to dinner. And we were taken to a dinner in a very agreeable restaurant in London called Muffins. One of the waitresses came up and whispered in my ear that if, I, that if I was the Bob Dylan guy, then they had something they'd like to play me. And that was that 1967 bootleg. That was the first time I had ever heard anything unreleased by Dylan before. Uh, so that was that was doubly thrilling, partly because it was uh, a, a sort of clandestine, illegal thing, and partly because it was such fantastic music. And I assume this was the era where some of those acetates and everything were coming in, especially into the, the music scene over here in England. And you had Manfred Mann with, with Mighty Quinn. You've obviously got Brian Auger. Julie Driscoll and the Trinity with this wheels on fire. Yes. So that Dylan's music was seeping over to the UK anyway and, and being recorded. Yes, it was um, the bootleg circulated because um, a demo tape of it was sent over to, or an acetate recording was sent over to the British uh, wing of his music publishing company, which at that time uh, was called Big Ben Music. And uh, that was based in London. So these these tracks were sent over specifically to get sort of pop hit single cover versions achieved by by British groups because at the time still British groups were the exciting thing that was happening. For, this is all in the wake of the Beatles, but you know this was still going on in '67. And so, yes, Manfred Mann, uh, Brian Auger and Julie Driscoll and so on, yeah. If your memory serves you well We were going to meet again and wait Sometimes you unpack all my things And sit before it gets too no man alive will come to you with another tale to tell. And you know that we shall meet again if your memory serves you well.
Interesting reading outtakes on Bob Dylan and your take on Blood on the Tracks, which was written around the time of the release of that album in uh, 1975. We have the wonderful track Buckets of Rain here, but the reception of that album amongst many reviewers and in the music press was mixed. But it seemed that your review drew out the greatness or the aspects of that album that resonate today. I was lucky because I saw it straight away, or I heard it straight away, that it was a really, really major work that would mean that Bob Dylan had escaped from being labelled as Mr. 1960s, that this was establishing not only him for the 1970s, but establishing the fact that any rock artist could now have some kind of career longevity. I mean, I've often had to review or or had to write about a new Bob Dylan album where I have been, you know, rather slow to appreciate its virtues because I sometimes uh, I miss what's not there quicker than I appreciate what is there sometimes. But with Blood on the Tracks, I, I was given a white label, an advanced copy, but I had to write about it more or less instantly. I'd probably only heard it through three times or something by the time I had to write that review. But yeah, it was spot on that uh, that this was absolutely on a par with 
his best work of the 1960s and and i i could understand how how this affected the whole way that he could move into a future from that and wonderful what sound he got on that track buckets of rain you've just got that acoustic guitar and bass yes real simplicity that just works yes and such a nice mood i mean it's just a lovely track you know all you can do is do what you must you do what you must do and you do it well that's it it's rather like uh that 1964 track to Ramona, oh. you know, in that way, it, uh, it's very, it's very modest and human. Back it's a rain, back it's a tears. Got all them buckets coming out of my ears Buckets of moonbeams in my hand You got all the love, honey, baby, I can stand Seen pretty people disappear like smoke Friends will arrive, friends will disappear If you want me, honey, baby, I'll be here
And now we go forward about three years to 1978. Originally a track on Street Legal, but we have a live version of True Love Tends to Forget, but from, I think, the Paris show. But the you... last of the Paris. There was a series of, of shows in Paris, uh, not as many as there had been in Earl's Court just beforehand. And this track is from the last of the Paris concerts. And they were marvellous. They were absolutely marvellous. I mean, I know a lot of people now, uh, it seems to be almost fashionable amongst Dylan Cognus Genty mm. to say that um, the 78 concerts were uh, were Las Vegas, that they were too big and uh, too flashy and they weren't the real... They weren't Bob at his nitty-gritty best. But actually, when he was there at the time, it was just amazing. I mean, he hadn't been to the UK since the Isle of Wight, which was nine years earlier. And uh, even the Isle of Wight was a one-off. He hadn't actually toured Britain for 12 years since those controversial 66 gigs. So, uh, so to get to be able to see him at all were thrilling, and you had to, I had to, uh, had to queue all all night to get tickets outside the the places where they were selling them uh, for the Earl's Court concerts, and so I was extremely lucky to be able to get to Paris as well, and those Paris shows were right up there amongst the very best. Whether that comes across on the recording entirely, I, I can't tell because. You know, if you hear something where you were there at the time, it's going to have the resonance that it had at the time. And afterwards, maybe it's you had to be there. I don't know. What do you think? We talked earlier about the sort of evolution of Dylan's sound, and I think that this just is another avenue that that he was um, going down and, and just as valid as the rest. This has just got more of a yes. conventional, I'm not sure, but it's just another route that he was as following and and, um, and just adds, adds to the songs. Yes, and, you know, he had always liked saxophones on other people's records, and there now he had a saxophonist, and he had always liked black women singers. Uh, he'd loved the staple singers, not that they were all women, but... Uh, you know, and so to add that to his sound, it was thrilling at the time, absolutely inspired. And the way that he worked with with that big band and with that vocal harmonies was, was brilliant. Was it one of these shows that Dylan invited you backstage? Well, I was phoned up by the record company office, press office in London, one of the mornings of the Earl's Court shows. And uh, she said, Bob says, would you like to come backstage and say hello? Uh, I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I went with my son, who was nine years old. And uh, he was a sort of icebreaker, really, because, you know, Dylan doesn't do small talk, but he's nice around vulnerable people. He's nice around children. And so, uh, so that meant that uh, it went okay for me. I mean, really, he was asking me because my first book had come out, Song and Dance Man, The Art of Bob Dylan, the first critical study of Dylan's work. It had come out in 72. But Dylan didn't want to... Uh, it wouldn't have been Dylan-esque for him to say, you know, I really liked your book or anything. So what he said to the record company press girl was, 
tell him um, I really liked an article he wrote in Melody Maker last week. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that, yeah.
now we have a bit of the blues and we go back i think to um the late 1920s here and rabbit brown and james alley blues but this was a song bob dylan recorded but this has got an association with new orleans oh uh, yeah rabbit brown was from new orleans and uh james alley is a uh a corruption of Jane's Alley, and uh, it was a particularly rough part of New Orleans in those early days. Rabbit Brown only managed to get into a studio to record, I think, four tracks, and his voice is just gorgeous. Uh, But the reason I chose this was not because Dylan did an early uh, live performance, I think, of, uh, of James Alley Blues, but because... When he comes to record his own song, Mississippi, decades later, in 2001, it's on the album Love and Theft. He is really, he's really channeling this uh, Rabbit Brown track. They both talk about uh, being new in the country, new in the town, I mean, from, from having grown up in the country. And uh, both songs mention uh, uh, mules, can't say the he has used these exact words at all and you can't say that uh, the the melody or even the sound are the same and yet um if you know uh, dylan's record of mississippi from 2001 and you know or you hear now james alley blues from rabbit brown uh, i think you 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 can just feel a connection you took a trip to New Orleans about 16, 17 years ago? Yeah, I, I took a long train ride down from Atlanta in Georgia, down through Alabama and um, uh, all the way down to New Orleans. And then I took um, another train back. That one had come from New York, but I joined it in Atlanta. Um, and I got off halfway down in um, a place called Laurel, Mississippi, and stayed overnight in a B&B, which was run by a woman who had two Great Danes. And she picked me up from the station and she said casually, I hope you like dogs. Well, I do like dogs, so that's lucky because these were extremely large dogs. Anyway, I got back on the train next day and went to New Orleans. And then uh, a day after that, uh, no, actually the very same afternoon, I had to get back on the the train, this time the one that was going all the way up to Chicago. And that night I stayed or stopped off in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Jackson was where um, Medgar Evers lived, who was uh, the guy he sings about in his great protest song, Only a Pawn in Their Game. Mm. I didn't have long in New Orleans. I, I mean, I have been a couple of other times. The last time I was there, is about seven years ago, and I was giving a talk at Tulane University. But um, that first trip, it was uh, it was very hurried because I was researching about Blind Willie McTell at the time, and uh, and I just had this one brief chance to nip down on those big trains, and it was those travelling on those trains that I was really thrilled by, rather than actually just getting to New Orleans for far too brief a period.
like they used to be. No timing now, nothing like they used to be. And I'm telling you all the truth, oh, take it for me. I done seen better days, but I am putting up with these. I don't seen better days, but I'm putting up with these. I can have a much better time with these girls now, it's so hard to please. Cause I was born in the country, and I needed to go. Cause I was born in the country, she thinks I'm easy to rule. She tried to hit me to a wagon, she wanna Drive me like a mule. You know, I bought the groceries and I paid the rent. Yeah, I buy the groceries and I paid the rent. She tried to make me wash her clothes, but I got good common sense. I said, if you don't want me, why don't you tell me so? Know if you don't want me, why don't you tell me so? Because it ain't like a man that ain't got nowhere to go. I've been giving you sugar for sugar, let you get salt for salt. I'll give you sugar for sugar, let you get salt for salt. And if you can't get along with me, well, it's your own fault. How you want me to love you and you treat me mean? How do you want me to love you? You keep on treat me mean. You my daily thought and my nightly dream. Sometimes I think that you too sweet to die. Sometimes I think that you too sweet to die. And another time I think you ought to be buried alive. Now we have Warfare and the version of another self-portrait that came out just under a decade ago. And that was a song that I think was originally written and recorded in late 71 and this is yes. this has got that more of that country feel again yes uh, the the version that people would have known before another self portrait was the version that was on an album called Doug Psalm and Friends which was uh, produced by Jerry Wexler for Atlantic Records uh, and came out at, i think early 1973 and on that uh, Bob is a sort of session player almost. He's not the lead singer at all. Doug Sam is, of course. Doug Sam was a guy that Bob had always liked ever since the mid-60s when when there'd been a hit single called She's About a Mover by the Sir Douglas Quintet, which was a sort of American attempt to sound like a British Beatles-type group. They had a rather odd idea of... of, uh, the British aristocracy, I think. So Doug Sam, who was a complete Texan through and through, first had a hit with under the name Sir Douglas Quintet. 
and Bob had liked that single, She's About a Mover. And so uh, when he was back in New York, hanging around early, uh, uh, in the first couple of years of the 1970s, he dropped in on various sessions, and one of them was that Doug Sam session. And one of the tracks on that album, and it's a lovely album, was a version of Wallflower. But Dylan brings out its um, its charm, I think, more on the verse, on the more solo version. I mean, solo as a vocalist. I mean, on the another self-portrait album. Wallflower, wallflower. Would you dance with me? I'm sad and lonely too. Oh, flower, oh, flower, would you dance with me? I'm falling in love with you. Just like you, I'm wondering what I'm doing here. Like you, I'm wondering what's going on. Oh, flower, oh, flower, would you dance with me? The night will soon be gone. to date but actually one of bob's early songs we have don't think twice it's all right from a live recording of a show of his at rochester new york in november 2018 in terms of the more newer period of bob dylan and the rough and uh-huh. rowdy ways sort of era yeah you've actually sort of newly captured that in in this book the last piece in the book is a very long essay about rough and rowdy ways uh, but also about my feelings about modern Bob, um, which are very mixed, in that I think an awful lot of his live performances have been rather poor. I hate it when people come out of those concerts saying it was the best ever, because quite clearly mm. he is not as good live now as he used to be. I've chosen this track because I think this is an exquisite one-off performance of one of the songs of his which... Uh, you know, the early recording on freewheeling is absolutely unsurpassable. And and this 2018 version 
is very different. By that time, of course, uh, Bob was no longer really playing the guitar live. He was uh, he was playing piano. But, you know, the thing is, I think he gets bored too easily on stage now. And therefore, you know, if you hear a run of these performances of Don't Think Twice It's All Right from 2018, I think it's more or less perfect this one night. But after that, he never again on subsequent nights pays it nearly the same amount of attention. You know, he, you can you can just hear him dropping off his level of interest in the middle. Whereas this performance, it's sustained. What the change he makes to the melody, he sticks to every verse. And he plays it nicely as well as singing it uh, with, his, with his rough and rowdy ways-ish sort of a voice, but beautifully.
And our final track, Michael, is a song from Rough and Rowdy Ways. And you say in Outtakes on Bob Dylan that you think that this is the one song that's closest to a, a great track from that LP? Yeah, I think so. I know uh, most people seem to feel that Key West is the great song. But um, it's often been said that just because a song is very long doesn't make it a masterpiece. Mm. This is often said, of course, by people who don't much like Bob Dylan anyway. Uh, it's a way of sort of sneering. But I do sort of feel that because Key West is very long, it's nine minutes something, that it has beguiled people into feeling that it must be the most substantial track. That is, aside from Murder Most Foul, mm. uh, which God knows is 17 minutes. Mm. <laughs> but no, I I love... I've made up my mind to give myself to you. It has so much thought and feeling in it, and it's it's so beautifully done. I mean, there's a discussion in relation to kind of the, the meaning of that song, whether it's a, more of a traditional love song or whether it's it's got more of a spiritual element. Yeah, well, you know, you take your choice. I've heard it said that uh, he's addressing his audience, that at long last he's admitting that you know, okay, I give myself to you. Whereas um, in the 60s, he hated being told that he belonged to his audience. But yeah, you could surely hear it as an address to God, as well as to a love, a secular love. I've never particularly wanted to pin down exactly what a song means so much as I've I've always felt that my job as a critic is to explore and elucidate 
the way in which what a song achieves, achieves it, which isn't necessarily to say this song means I'm finally in love with the last lover of my lifetime. How does a song achieve its unique gorgeousness or its its particular special effects? That I think that's I think that's the crucial question for any critic, not only of music but literature too. This is why uh, some critics are more interesting than others. You write in in the book as well that that rough and rowdy ways. Sometimes it it feels like it's just part of the long goodbye. Yes. Don't you feel that? Especially in terms of the some of the themes of the music and even that song itself, I've made up my mind to give you myself to you because there are elements of that song that reach back to the even to the fifties with the harmonies. Yes. And you know, some of the lines on the album I've already outlived my life by far, he sings at one point. A lot of people gone, a lot of people I knew, he sings. And I'm not what I was. Things aren't what they were. So before we go, Michael, I think as hopefully things get better with coronavirus and hopefully national borders open up and events are held, you're hoping to to get out there and do some more arts festival and and events? Yes, I am. Uh, At the moment, I have um, two gigs in September, one at a festival in Belfast and the other at an arts venue in Glasgow. Uh, Before that, there's a strong likelihood that I will be able to do three events in Switzerland in August. All these things have been postponed from, you know, earlier times because of the virus uh, and because of the atrocious way it has been handled by the British government. You know, it needn't have been this way. It's worth saying that... uh... Outtakes on Bob Dylan is available, obviously, in all good bookshops, if you can get to a bookshop, but it's available on... It's not yet. It won't be... Oh, isn't it? Is it, is it from Root? It, yes. It won't be in bookshops uh, and on Amazon until uh, September. Uh, but at the moment, you can get advanced copies from rootonline.com. That's Root as in Route 66, and then there's a hyphen, root hyphen online.com and then if people want to find out more information about you you've got a website as well michaelgray.net all right then many thanks all right take care and uh, thanks again okay bye now On my terrace, lost in the stars, listening to the sounds of the sad guitars, been thinking it all over, and I thought it all through. I've made up my mind to give myself to you. I saw the first 
river that sings Just takes me a while to realize things I see a sunrise, I see a dawn I'll lay down beside you when everyone's gone I travel from the mountains to the sea I hope that the gods go easy with me I knew you'd say yes I'm saying it too I've made up my mind To give myself to you Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.